Women on Screen Out Loud is proudly supported by Company 3 Toronto. Company 3 is the leading post-production provider to the world's top content creators. Welcome to Women on Screen Out Loud, giving a platform to women in the film industry who challenge, motivate, and inspire on all sides of the camera. We are your hosts, Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue. Paraphrasing from this episode's guest essayist, the role of color grading is one of the last moments in the filmmaking process where you get to help tell the story in its many deep visual elements and a unique career path that often goes under the radar. In her essay, Stay Gold, filmmaker and senior colorist Trisha Hagarillis gives us a rare look behind the curtain at the incredible craft of coloring, tips for key communication and collaboration in the post-production world, and insight into a recent leap to pivot her career with these many acquired skills. When I was invited to this podcast to speak about my experiences in color grading, it had actually been over a year since leaving my full-time senior colorist position at a shop that was my home base for 11 years. But I thought, it's a rare opportunity to talk about color in general, and for me, it was also an opportunity to reflect on a long career that I was walking away from, to pursue a filmmaking career that started out as a side hustle. The result of such reflection, aside from a mini existential crisis, was a chance for me to distill what I've learned about color grading and to realize just how those lessons are guiding me as a creator. In 2008, I was a driven but insecure cinematography and screenwriting student on a field trip to Deluxe, now known as Company 3, shout out to our sponsors. Our tour had ended in the Digital Intermediate Suite, also known as DI. It was a precursor to today's version of color grading. As an aspiring cinematographer, I understood how important color correction was, but it wasn't until I walked into a room that looked like a spaceship or the Batcave that I realized just how creative of a craft it was. The DI colorist was working on a scene from Bangkok Dangerous. He showed us his starting point. A scene on a murky river in Thailand on an overcast day. Then he showed us what the directors wanted and what they had intended. By way of wizardry, for all I knew, the colorist had added signs of a hot sun, dreamy blooming highlights, and to top it off, he had turned brown water into gold. It was alchemy, and I had found a new aspiration. Years later, I would become a full-time colorist, having learned how to turn all kinds of things gold, and hearing from my own collaborators about their intentions. It wasn't until I began working with directors, cinematographers, editors, and art directors that I realized that a colorist's job was really about communicating. Don't get me wrong, color grading is a technical craft. You have to have a good sense of different workflows, camera formats, film, file formats, resolutions, and color space. You have to be fast with your software and quick with your creative solutioning. Your grading may even veer into the VFX realm, whether it be sky replacements or blemish removal. But color is also one of the last moments in filmmaking where you get to set the tone or the mood of the story, where you get to direct the audience's eyes to a specific point in the frame, and with the help of sound, where you get to communicate the intended emotion of the piece. So, how do you communicate with a colorist? How do you talk about what the picture should look like? Bright, dark, 
warm, cold. These are descriptions that can be technically accomplished. They simply refer to exposure and color temperature, allowing you to head in a specific direction while also troubleshooting any issues you might have with the scene. For example, it could be too bright or it could be too cold. Happy, moody, intense, dreary, bold, gentle, sharp. Emotive terms like these allow the colors to get creative. They can now start interpreting what that could mean visually, trying different looks to complement the shooting style, lighting, and production design. Contrast, saturation, temperature, shadows, mids, and highs. These are the specifics. These are the things that a colorist will adjust and manipulate to get where you want to be. While you could spend hours discovering endless possibilities of looks, it's easy to get lost or stuck. So what do you do when this happens? Go back to the start, ask yourself, what was the original intention? A highlight of my color career wasn't actually as a lead colorist. Under senior colorist and my mentor, Eric Whip, I got the chance to work on a few scenes on Mad Max Fury Road. He and director George Miller had worked on a number of films together already, and when it came to this film, he wanted it to feel like a graphic novel. This meant moving away from the dreary, colorless, post-apocalyptic films that were popular at the time, and moving into this rich, colorful, two-tone, poppy, and sharp world that the film exists in. Eric had made the shadows deep and pushed the saturation of the desert sand into golden yellow. Every sky was replaced. Every character had shapes around their eyes, sharpening them and giving them an extra glint. And there was a shape on every face to highlight the sweat and contours, giving the picture an extra layer of depth and contrast without affecting the overall contrast. It was magic. Not just the look itself, or the fact that I got to track Charlize Theron's eyeballs for weeks, but getting to hear about the collaboration between a director and their colorist. As I mentioned before, color is one of the last creative steps in film. The colorist is a collaborator. I didn't fully understand what this meant until I made my first short film. I dove into the world of post right out of film school, leaving cinematography and screenwriting to the wayside. There was a film, however, that never quite left me. It was a film called Beat. It had no dialogue, and the core concept revolved around a character whose heart glowed through her chest whenever she saw the girl of her dreams. There's no way I would have made it in my one year of film school, so I put it to rest. However, the more I learned about color and VFX, and the more I worked with other creatives, the more possible it felt to make the film. The year I became a full-time colorist was also the year that I finally finished Beat. It took two years to complete, and in that time, my newfound directing skills were feeding my colors' techniques, and vice versa. I was finding my footing as a colorist, and because of that, I had found my voice again as a filmmaker, and I would pursue both passions almost equally. 2019 would mark the beginning of the end of a decade-long career. I had become a senior colorist a few years back, and I was free to take on low-budget projects from other marginalized filmmakers alongside my commercial work. By that point, I also had two more short films under my belt as a director, with a number of projects in development. Things were changing, and as a queer woman of color, I felt like I could say more and do more as a filmmaker. As I think back, insecurity and a severe lack of representation in front and behind the camera made taking a creative lead position in filmmaking feel like something I was never allowed to do. But that year, with an invitation to the director's lab at the Canadian Film Centre, I would finally give myself permission. 
During my first year as a color assistant, you could count the number of commercial colorists based in Toronto with both hands. For a few years, I was one of two women colorists at a commercial post house. And for several more years, I was the only woman who was a person of color. Color is still a specialized field, and it's still a male-dominated one. And I'm sad to say that my quote-unquote legacy didn't leave behind more women in the field. But I know it's changing. In Toronto, you'll find more commercial post houses with women at the helm of the color departments. At Studio Feather, you have Anna Escorce, and at Darling, you can find Rosalind DeSisto and Cassie Bellamy. And that's just the post houses. In the last seven years, color grading software and processing power has become way more accessible than ever. I hope this means more women are out there, discovering the craft and building their voices on their own terms. As for me, my filmmaking aspirations haven't changed. It's just become my full-time gig. I haven't stopped color grading completely. Not yet. I don't think I can, or that it will ever leave me. It was in due part because of color grading that I found a voice that I thought I'd lost. And as much as I resisted the notion, it's really seeped into how I write and the way I see frames. I don't know what my future as a filmmaker holds. But as I move into my next project, with my experiences in one hand and the idea of discovering new ways to collaborate in the other, I can see the possibilities. And from here, it looks golden. Coming up, Lara-Jean and Trisha expand more on Trisha's career highlights and the long road to allowing her directing passions to take the front seat of her career. Hi, I'm Lara-Jean Korostecki, and I'm here with Trisha Hagarillis. Trisha, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You talked a lot about communicating in this essay, and I know that directors and cinematographers and editors and art directors, they all kind of communicate differently. Do you adjust yourself for each, or have you found like a way to kind of communicate yourself that cuts through it all? Um, no, I, I definitely have to turn it on a little bit differently. I, I think for color, you're really on the receiving end. Like it, color is like a service industry, mm. and so you're really, you really want to get what whoever's in charge like what they want and so it's I feel like I'm listening a little bit differently and I'm thinking with a, a different side of my brain when I when I do it as opposed to directing when you're directing you have to listen and then compromise and then <laughs> try to maintain your 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 vision uh, mm. in a sense but keeping that open a little bit differently. You talked about that collaboration and learning about that collaboration from Eric Whip and George Miller. And when we were prepping your episode, the paragraph on Mad Max really stood out because your prose is so wonderful. And it really highlighted how uh, color can transform a performance. Like as soon as I read that paragraph, all of us were like, oh, I can picture Mad Max Fury Road in my head. Is there a project that you worked on that you're most proud of where you feel like your work elevated the story? There was, yeah. I, I had a chance to work on a number of music videos with this collective called Kids Studio. And they worked on music videos for, they, they, they were on a lot of music videos, but the ones we worked on specifically were mostly for The weekend. And mm. um, Big Sean was a really big, it was a really big moment where I felt like I'd found, I, I felt like, um, an artist, I guess. I felt as a colorist, I felt like someone was coming to me 
specifically for what I was offering with a vision. Yeah, I, I'd say most of my projects with the kids studio, those were those were my moments of like <laughs> magic and and like it, it felt like every time they came in, I'm like, okay, let's do this. We're, we know what we're doing here. We have our own groove and everything. So yeah, alchemy. <laughs> yeah, you talk about advice for young colorists that if or or really anyone, if you get stuck or find yourself on the same frame, go back to the start. What is the intention? That statement is so relevant to living everyday life. <laughs> has has your approach to color has that statement affected your perspective and intentions in your personal life? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like when I left, the, when I made the decision to go, it, it really was about what am I doing? Why did I get into film in the first place? Uh, and color was like a great, it was like wonderful. It was it was so new. There was so much to discover. It was so fast. Like commercial industry was so fast that I was just like learning so much. But yeah, you get to a point where you're like kind of comfortable and then you get older and you just sort of feel like, okay, wait, well, hold on. What was, what was I doing again? Like especially in a color session when you're with clients, you have a lot of voices. It's very useful. And so I think it's helped on set as well. Um, mm. And yeah, in life when, you know, a million things are coming at you and you just need to like stop for a second, it's, it, it's come in handy for sure. You talked about finally giving yourself permission to mm. pursue directing. How did that feel? Uh, scary at first. Scary. It was actually, it was a long process. It was like, I think anyone who's applied for the Canadian Film Center knows it, it often takes more than once. And it, it took me two times, but it was also, it was just like a lot. It was a long process, I think. It was like, yes, go, go do it, go apply for it. And then it's also like, okay, try again. <laughs> but also it was like in between giving my notice and like telling everybody uh, at work that I'd be leaving, it, it was just sort of a lot of false starts, a lot of like, mm. don't quit. It's like, is this a good idea? This is a bad idea? This sounds terrible. What is wrong with you? Why would you do this? <laughs> like That beautiful so, artist, yeah. internal voice yeah. that loves to never leave us. Exactly. That's And that's exactly it. But it was quite, now that I'm in it and now that I'm, now that I've left color too, left it full time. Like I have gone back a few, for a few sessions. It's like, it's freeing. It's very... I feel like, like, it feels like the possibilities are endless. It feels like I, I'm like, which is weird to say at, in my, like, in my age, it's kind of like, I feel like I can do anything, even though it's a weird, <laughs> scary world out there, but yeah. Unfamiliar. Yeah. 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 That, that giving ourselves permission and, and feeling like we can, uh, you know, that the possibilities are endless, I think is sometimes unfamiliar to us. It's so exciting. Mm -hmm. Tell us where we can watch Beat. Can we watch Beat somewhere? You can. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's on my, if you go to my Instagram, which is just at Trisha Hagarillis, T-R-I-C-I-A-H-A-G-O-R-I-L-E-S. There's a link there and then it'll link you to my webpage, which will link right to, right to Beat. You mentioned that you were the only person of color for a long time in your field, at least in Toronto. One of the cinematographers of HBO's Insecure, Ava Burkowski, spoke eloquently a few years ago about lighting the BIPOC community. So we were curious, what does it feel like to do color on people of color? Yeah, I, that's actually a really good question. I uh, Halfway through 
early in my career, I worked on this documentary called Shadism. And it, it kind of, it, it dealt with like, you know, well, colorism um, in cultures in general, but it was very important to that director that we, that, that the skin tone was right. I, I, in digital cinema, it, I think it was a little bit, like there's a little bit, it, it's not like film where it, film is graded to white skin tone. So you have a little bit more leeway there. But I, I think I was lucky that in a time that I was coming up as a colorist, like DPs were aware of that. DPs were aware that you had to light different, uh, like darker skin tones differently. And so it was, it was rarely an issue for me, but it was also something that I was aware of. It was always mm. something that you kind of had to you always just, you know, in trying to make the picture look the best, like the person, the character is your center point, is the person that if you can't save anything else, you save the person. So it was always something I was aware of, but nothing I had to, yeah, I'm lucky. I didn't really have to worry about it. Giving true equality and and respect to each performer and recognizing, as you just said, that film is lit for white people, the, the in, intrinsic white supremacy uh, system that we started in. We love that you um, name dropped. We love when folks use their platforms to lift up others. So thank you for dropping Anna Scorze and mm-hmm. Rosalind DeSisto and uh, Cassie yes, Bellamy. Yeah. Uh, amazing. <laughs> thank you so, so much. Um, you talked about that color grading has really seeped into the way that you write and the way that you see frames. And Farah and I were talking about, and Jen and I, about how as a performer, when we watch film and TV, we watch it with a different eye than other vocations. So I'm really curious, like, what do you notice most when you watch film? That's a, that's a bit complicated. I, I will, like, you <laughs> know. Answer it in one word. In one word. <laughs> um, no, <I'm> <laughs> I have like I actually have a background in semiotics and uh, equity studies, and so actually the first thing I like, I'm often watching it with that lens, which is like a critical, <laughs> a cultural studies lens first of all, and then I'll go into sometimes I'll go into like oh I would have done this differently or like <laughs> oh, I think I could have saved, I think I could have saved that highlight a little bit more or things like that, but for the most part it's. Uh, it's production design, actually. It's it's production design and, and lensing and cinematography that I'm paying attention to. And I feel like color colorists are like, yeah, in the last 10 years, in commercials especially, is where you feel color the most. Mm. Uh, whereas I feel like in like independent cinema or like movies, it's it, it's a little less so, especially as you enter like this Marvel world, they kind yeah. of all look very similar. But so sometimes I'll just notice, I'm like, oh, that's a that's a strong look. That's a really strong mm. look. So after all the, that's just a set, like after all the. This is kind of sexist. This is kind of racist. It's like color kind of comes in after that. Well, you, you got your priorities straight. <laughs> good priorities. Yeah, it's, that's what drives me. <laughs> um, to finish up, are you up for a rapid fire game? Okay. You yeah. ready? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to call out the emotion words you used in the essay to communicate <gasps> moons. Okay. All right. Okay. And then you describe the colors you see with every word. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Happy. Gold. Moody. Uh, blue. Intense. Uh, gray. Oh, no. Sorry. That's. Bright highlights. Sorry, that's not a color. <laughs> White, actually. Dreary. Uh, gray. Bold. Uh, red. 
gentle. Um, uh, rose gold pastel. I can't, I can't. The colors gets a little, yeah. Rose gold. That's how I talk about color too now. So I'm like uh, slightly desaturated. So slightly desaturated rose gold. Yeah, pastel. Last but certainly not least, sharp. Ooh. Oh, cyan. Cyan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's Trisha, weird. Trisha, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Trisha Hagarillis is an award-winning Toronto-based filmmaker also known for her work as a senior colorist at Alter Ego Post. As a colorist, she's worked on commercials, feature films, and music videos for artists like The Weeknd, Big Sean, and Orville Peck. In 2015, she received the RBC Emerging Canadian Artist Award at the Inside Out Toronto Film Festival for her first short film, Beat. Her most recent shorts include Huang Mataranta and Lola's Wake, which garnered Trisha the Wifty Film Award at the 2020 Real Asian Film Festival. Most recently, Trisha was a resident at the 2019 Director's Lab at the Canadian Film Centre and has received the inaugural Inside Out plus Out TV Outspoken Documentary Fund for her upcoming work, The Archivist, and is in development with Faye Pictures for an upcoming digital series. Thank you, Trisha, for joining us at Company 3 today. Be sure to check out future episodes of Women on Screen Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts. And check out upcoming events and initiatives from Women on Screen at womenonscreen.ca. Until next time, I'm Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue. And we are Women Women on on Screen. Thank you to Company 3 Toronto for hosting us and for continuing to support Women on Screen. This podcast was created and produced by Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue. Executive produced by Farah Marani, Lauren McKinley, and Kira Murphy. With original music by Erica Procunye, sound captured by Devin Doucette, and sound mixed by Arturo Fuenmayor at Company 3 in Toronto.